What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Run Your Mouth podcast. I got an incredible episode coming at you guys today with Josh Walcos. Uh, did I say that last name right? I might already blew that into Walcos. Walcos, awesome. Uh, before we get into it, because you got the real info, we're going to get into fluoride. We're going to get into why they're preaching transgenderism, <laughs> how the CIA caused 9 11, and how BlackRock <laughs> is trying to take over financial institutions. Before we do it, uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Just let everyone know a little bit about your background and. Uh, you know, how you research these things. Sure. Yeah, Josh Walker. So basically, uh, uh, background is I actually do work in the banking industry, so I have a little bit of a knowledge there. Um, my research is basically just doing internet research like anybody else, but I have a kind of a knack for putting together all the information, put it into threads that are easily digestible for people. Um, uh, got a pretty good response for most of my threads um, online thus far. Uh, the last couple of years started off with like the COVID thing and have just kind of build upon it from there. And um, let's see, what else? Uh, I'm currently writing for a, a website that just was came out called The Publica. That's where I released that uh, transgenderism article. So that's that's exciting. So I basically just be doing some long form stuff for them on various topics. And yeah, you know, I'm just a dude who just uh, sees uh, the world kind of going crazy and uh, decided to, you know, do the research and then put everything out there and see how people respond to it. Got it, got it. Cool. Uh, I am getting a comment that the audio is a little staticky. So for all the fans out there, Josh is an incredible writer. He's not quite set up for uh, the professional podcast setup yet. Why don't I just take these AirPods off and see if that helps? Yeah, we'll maybe that. we can go with the uh, computer. Uh, yeah, we could try that. Because if not, I was going to tell everyone the information's worthwhile. Suck it up. You'll, we'll get used to it. It's not, it's not unlistenable. It's just a little bit like a little bit like damn old radio. damn radio. Settings, audio. All right, how's that sound? A little bit better. Yeah, and then I think as long as you have the yeah, I'm not hearing myself repeat back. You want to just give me, give a quick test? Just say something. Yeah, can you hear me good? Yeah, better? that's way that's way better. All right, let's uh, okay, cool. let's go with that. Uh, so the first uh, one of your threads that caught my eye, and so we'll delve right in, is uh, BlackRock. I've been yelling about BlackRock and ESG scores for two years now, mm -hmm. uh, and one of the most interesting things that I saw happen, specifically with BlackRock, was that two months before COVID took place, there was a ma massive bailout of the financial sector, where essentially. They started doing these, uh, they intervened in the repo market. It seemed like there wasn't enough cash in the system. And all of a sudden, the the, the, the Fed was essentially bailing out banks by um, intervening in the repo markets and lending everybody money. Then all mm -hmm. of a sudden, COVID came around and there was a massive bailout. And the bailout was so big, to my eye, they actually gave individuals checks so that no one would go, hey, why are the banks getting another bailout? And there was very little conversation about that bailout. And one of the most screwy things was BlackRock was put in charge of the bailout and they created these special purpose vehicles to essentially engage in activities that the Fed's not even allowed to do. That is the beginning and end of what I know about what took place at the beginning of COVID in terms of like a financial bailout. I don't know where any of the money went. I don't quite know what BlackRock did. I just know that BlackRock seemed to have a tie-in that no one else did. Um, you seem to have a little bit more of the specifics of kind of what went down in that time. So I'll hand mm -hmm. it back to you because maybe you can kind of fill us in, give us the education. Yeah, you got a pretty good handle on it, actually. The repo thing is actually when it did start, you can kind of see that the, the reserve money and the, and the commercial money started um, uh, 
kind of converging together for the first time that's ever happened. Um, and, and after that happened, I think JP Morgan was the big one with the, with the, the money that the Fed was pumping in with the re repo market. But basically what happened is BlackRock, they released a report to their shareholders, I think it was in August of 2019, and they introduced this concept of going direct, okay, which is basically injecting money directly into private institutions, something that they had never done before. This was kind of supposed to be just like an, an idea in case there was a financial crisis that occurred. Uh, lo and behold, a week later, the, the Fed meets in um, uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which is a yearly symposium they do, where basically just talk about monetary policy. And uh, basically a week later, they started discussing this going direct idea at that symposium. And lo and behold, they, they started in actually initiating that idea in relation to the repo market. And then once the uh, pandemic hit, you know, that gave them kind of carte blanche to really do whatever they want. And they created all these special facilities like the Main Street uh, Lending Program, the PPP Program. There's like six or seven of them which means they were just direct injecting money. It ended up being around $3.5 trillion all said and done, which directly relates to the inflation that we've been seeing in the last year or so. Um, it's not Russia. Russia did not do the inflation in the United States. Uh, but yeah, that's basically what happened. They bypassed you know, all the regulations. You can see it within the, the thread that the, the balance sheet of the Fed and the, and the commercial uh, money, they correlate exactly right at right around late 2000 uh, September 2019 and it just keeps going on and on up up and up and and they've never correlated in that way before it's kind of confusing because you know the fed just would just usually print reserve money you know just it's it's literally out of thin air and then uh, that would give the ability of commercial banks to then you know lend more money as well but that is completely flipped upside down now and like i said the, the going direct concept allowed the Fed just to basically pump money right into, you know, uh, banks' uh, accounts. They opened up the lending window. Uh, it's basically a giant shit show. And, <laughs> and, that, and, that's, and that's why we're, uh, we're experiencing, you know, all these crazy inflation over the last year, year and a half. So let's break it down a little bit. So the old structure mm -hmm. pre-pandemic and uh, starting with the going direct, what was the Fed's tool? It would essentially, from what I remember, it would just kind of, wouldn't just buy up bonds to basically deposit more money into the banks i'm asking i, I haven't been in my yeah, yeah. my it would, my money and banking class in over a decade it would buy like treasury securities um and then it would basically print money and put it on reserve which then would enable commercial banks in order to stimulate the economy basically to to lend more out into the economy itself and right. that just go ahead and from what I remember, one of the problems in the uh, in 2008, 2009 was they tried using this system and the banks just didn't really make any loans. Uh, and from what I, I mean, this is a snapshot. The reasons that they weren't making the loans was one, I think they actually needed to kind of shore up their balance sheets because of outstanding risk that they mm -hmm. had on like derivative investments that they had made. So they actually, I think, needed to have that money in the bank to kind of keep their bank solvent. And then two, I think they were also looking at the markets and all of a sudden their models for lending for housing no longer made sense because they were basically looking at a system where, uh, you know, they were always assuming that the housing market was going up and that worked out really well for them because that meant that they were able to make the loans, package the loans, sell the loans like there was a working system. When all of a sudden mm -hmm. they were in an environment where the market wasn't just going up, well, then they had failure. They had fear that some of their investments might, might fail, so they had to keep the cash in hand. So like that was kind of the old system was lend to the banks. The banks are going to lend out and then we're going to get more money into the economy. 
So now all of a sudden we come into, uh, I guess, uh, you know, the pandemic and the only special purpose vehicle that I remember, which um, it was funny. And you had mentioned this, that BlackRock said, well, we're not taking a management fee for uh, for, you know, working for the Fed and processing all this money out. Mm -hmm. But they did go and buy up all of their what they were calling high yield bonds, which were just junk bonds. Essentially, they had junk bonds that. Uh, those investments went under, and so the Fed basically just went and bought up the junk bonds to shore up that. But that was like the only direct investment that I guess I would I, I had read about or was made aware of. Um, when you refer to like going direct, do you know other kind of like what were the other direct investments that I guess the Fed um, yeah. had made? I made a little list here. Basically, they're called the uh, uh, let's see, special. They're like emergency special facilities, fiscal facilities. And right. they did uh, what's called a corporate credit facility. Uh, they did municipal liquidity facilities. There's, there's what, seven of them, eight of them here. These are all, you know, these all basically mean they're injecting money directly into it. So the Paycheck Protection Program, that was a, a liquid facility where, uh, I don't know if you remember, that's basically small businesses during the pandemic could apply for the PPP loans. And, uh, Half you know, of which went to fraud. Exactly. Um, and basically just provided liquidity to financial institutions that originated those loans. Uh, then we have the, the, the money market mutual fund liquidity facility uh, that basically provided liquidity uh, to money market mutual funds that were facing significant redemption pressures. Commercial paper funding facility that was um, aimed to support the flow of the credit to businesses by purchasing short term and high quality commercial paper issued by eligible companies. Uh, let's see, we also have the primary dealer credit facility that provided short-term loans to primary dealers, the large financial institutions that act as uh, trading counterparties with the, the Federal Reserve. So, uh, and then we also have the TALF. I don't know if you remember hearing that about that, the term asset, asset-backed security loan facility that was aimed to support uh, the asset-backed securities market by providing loans to eligible investors that purchased newly issued high quality asset backed securities. So all, all told, you know, you have eight different things here that basically are, they were just injecting money under this secure, this, uh, this special uh, emergency facilities that they were given, you know, carte blanche basically. And then they basically, like you said earlier, they allowed BlackRock to bail themselves out. They hired them to manage all this uh, like they did in 2008. And then not only that, other nations like Canada, I, uh, there's a couple other, that I think Japan as well, hired BlackRock to actually manage their emergency during the pandemic as well. So that's why I call it a financial coup. It basically is. I mean, BlackRock, they, they have $21 trillion in assets under management, which is like mind blowing. That's like 40% of the total uh, assets in the, on, on, in the earth, on the earth. So, I mean, they can pretty much do whatever they want at this point. And uh, they're, a, they're basically, I look at them as like a fourth branch of government. You know, they basically are, are hired to, to, to using this Aladdin software. Have you heard of that? So I hadn't heard of it until I was uh, reading through your thread and you were uh, laying out both Aladdin and the AI system that they're building. To, yeah. Um, but I guess before we jump into kind of their end goal and what they're getting to, uh, what's the comparison of the 08 bailout to, I guess you said that the, that all of this money that was di direct investment was like three point something trillion. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't remember cause I, I seem to off the top of my head, isn't that larger than what 08, 09 was? Oh yeah. By orders of magnitude, like three or four times uh, more than the 08 bailout. 
the, the difference between it, as far, as far as I'm aware, is that, like you said, uh, during the 08 bailout, they had packaged all these mortgages together and they they, they made them basically seem like they were uh, sure deals. Uh, they, they gave them, what, like, I think it's four stars is how the ratings they were. And then you had uh, AIG and the Lehman Brothers collapse, and that kind of just set the dominoes off that uh, created a panic in the, in the market. And they came in and BlackRock helped to shore that up. But the, the difference is, is that the, the banks weren't receiving a liquidity directly from the Fed like the way they were just recently. Uh, and that's why you didn't see the inflation that occurred uh, as much as it did just in the last couple of years. So the difference is the balance sheet of the Fed and the commercial banks, if you look at that thread, you can see on the chart, like I said, they, they starting in about September of 2019, there had never been a correlation between these two. And then all of a sudden, once they started pumping all this money through these facilities, you see it rise and rise and rise and it stayed that way. And they're correlated over the last two and a half, three years now. And it's basically just, just stayed that way from now on. Um, and that's why, like, again, we're seeing all this inflation. When you pump $3.5 trillion into the economy, uh, that's a no-brainer. That's how inflation works, basically. And it's, right. and it's coming from nothing. <laughs> and now, so let's, tell, uh, let's go a little bit backwards and tell the Larry Fink story, because I guess uh, what's somewhat interesting to me is that in 08, 09, it seemed mm -hmm. like uh, Goldman Sachs, AIG, like uh, with Paulson at the Fed, like it kind of seemed like, and JP Morgan, like those were the bigger players. Something changed since 08, 09 that kind of, or maybe Larry Fink was always there just behind the scenes, but in the last bailout, I don't remember BlackRock coming up, and I also don't remember that BlackRock was kind of the big bank name that you would pull up if you're like, hey, the bankers own government. That kind of was not the bank or the name that I was thinking. Uh, so can you give us a little bit of the Larry Fink story of kind of who he is, where he came from, and what changed mm -hmm. over the last, I guess, you know, uh, four or five years that BlackRock kind of became the biggest player. Yeah, if you remember back in 08, what we heard a lot about was Goldman Sachs, if memory serves correct. That was kind of like the big boogeyman back then. BlackRock was kind of under the radar. They was originally with, uh, they were Blackstone, okay? That was the original investment company in 94. Uh, they had $165 billion under management um, and went public uh, at that point. This is 94. Uh, they had a lot of growth. They got uh, they purchased merged with Merrill Lynch Investments, and then uh, because of that, they they split off. They well, basically Larry Fink lost a hundred million dollars uh, with his initial company. He split off from Blackstone to BlackRock, and if you read a thread, there's an interesting article I posted where they actually did that deliberately in order to kind of confuse people uh, and obf obfuscate it. And then what happened is during the 2007-2008 uh, crisis. They were hired by the government, similar to where they were during the pandemic, and that's whenever they kind of managed everything throughout then. And at the time, I do remember not hearing hardly anything about about BlackRock, and that's kind of what has uh, catapulted them into the position that they are. Because in the government's eyes, they thought that they did a good job. They they helped to you know uh, contain a total collapse of the economy. Uh, how were you back then? How how familiar are you with the two thousand eight crisis? So. Actually, pretty familiar because I'm I'm 35 and I was okay. in I guess my last years of college and uh, interestingly it kind of did uh, uh, build my my libertarian spirit as there were no financial jobs and that was the sector I wanted to work in and I realized that government caused that mess and I was mad at them and mm -hmm. so I was there kind of studying the subprime mortgage crisis in college and 
how government created a credit asset bubble. So I would say mm -hmm. I kind of, it was one of those topics, like I was literally there studying it while it was happening. Cool, cool. Yeah, I mean, so if you remember back then, it was kind of a, there was a panic situation going on uh, within the United States. Like uh, once Lehman Brothers fell, I mean, there was a big, it was a big deal. And then it was right, I think Obama was just coming into office at that point as well. And then he initiated this these bailouts by hiring BlackRock in order to do so. And like again, that kind of catapulted them into the limelight. Uh, since then, they just kept on building, building assets. Like I said, they have 21 trillion under management right now. Um, and because of that, they once this recent crisis hit, they looked to BlackRock again to kind of come in and and help decide how they're going to uh, spend the money that the Fed prints out of thin air um, and, and give it to their buddies. They have, you know, it's, it's, it's just a big uh, corrupt game, in my opinion. It's basically they're just uh, all insiders. They, I think the more I think about it, that's why I kind of got into this is because the pandemic is just was crazy in itself. But there is a largest transfer of wealth in, the, in that last couple of years uh, than had been in the history of the world. And no and one covered I, it. Literally, no one nobody. covered it. If None. you weren't listening to this show or following your thread, you might not have heard the like ESG scores are being a little bit more covered now, especially as some senators and state are going, hey, we're divesting. But when there was that bailout, there was zero coverage of it. And there isn't mm -hmm. even a look back on it to go, hey, what did the Fed, Fed do? Where did that money go? Who did like literally nothing? Yeah. And basically they um, it was a coup. It was a really it really was. It was a financial coup. The largest transfer of wealth in the history of the world happened right under everybody's noses and they needed a pretext um, and they used the pandemic as a pretext. Now, I'm not saying that there wasn't an actual pandemic or there wasn't a virus or anything like that, but the the way that the dates line up, you know, they, they come out and they say, hey, we're gonna, we, we introduced this idea of going direct via that uh, letter to the investors. Uh, a week later, they meet in Jackson Hole and they start adopting that. They start, you know, talking about it amongst themselves at the Fed and then uh, it's that's in August. So once the pandemic hits just a few months later, that gave them kind of the the go ahead to implement this plan, because I think there was another bubble that was building up and they saw the writing on the wall that there was going to be another collapse or, or something, a big uh, thing within the market. And they needed a pretext in order to implement this plan. They wouldn't otherwise ever be able to convince the public to to go along with. And the, and the pandemic just served as a perfect pretext to do that under the guise of, uh, you know, just uh, health and security worldwide. And that's that's the way I kind of look at it. So there's there's two things that went on. You had the pandemic and all the social pressures and, and, and just the craziness that happened around that kind of bewildered the public to where the financial aspect wasn't even, even it was just a, you know, afterthought. People didn't really know what was going on at the time in the fog of war. My intuition was the same because I just remember reading about the uh, subprime mortgage crisis. I mean, not the... Um, the, uh, the repo loans and just ha that the repo loans made no sense because mm -hmm. I, 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 I've explained it that essentially if a bank's supposed to have 10% reserves and then they lend each other money overnight just so that they could hit that number to pretend like their bank is solvent and then they couldn't even have enough money between each other to lend themselves the 10% to meet the reserve requirement to pretend like a bank is solvent. So how much money is actually missing from the system? If the banks themselves, and then how can you have an interest rate of 2% if a bank, if I'm lending a bank money for a single evening and they want 7%, a bank's got to be the best person to lend money to, and I'm only giving them a loan for one night, 
and the interest rate on that needs to be six or seven percent, then obviously mm -hmm. the market interest rate can't be one or two percent or at the time zero percent. So that to me was like the golden signal of, oh, the, the there isn't as much money in the system as they're pretending and this thing's about to unravel. And then the, they stepped in and they, the, you know, they shored up the uh, the repo markets by just lending to the banks directly overnight so that they could mm -hmm. basically be insolvent, but close their books on a nightly basis at the Fed. And then all of a sudden you had uh, the COVID thing came out and you get this giant trillion dollar bailout that nobody's covering and the public didn't complain about because they all got their checks of a thousand dollars a month for whatever period of time they were receiving that for. Uh, so my intuition was the same as yours to go, oh, there was some massive crisis that was just averted under mm -hmm. the cover of COVID. Um, but even to this day, two years later, outside of the Twitter thread I read from you, I've seen essentially zero coverage of it. Yeah, there's not, you're not going to see anything in the mainstream media about it for sure. I mean, there are some people who covered it. A lot of the uh, material that I was able to glean was came from um, uh, Catherine Austin Fitz did a really good job on this. A guy named John Titus. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's he, he explains these things very clearly and well, far better than I ever can. James Corbett, I don't know if you're familiar with him as well. He, he does some good work on this. But these are all kind of you know, alternative media entities that, you know, if unless you follow them, you're not going to really come across, you know, this type of information. It'll be buried forever. We'll never, it'll never be brought to the forefront. The first two names that you mentioned, where, uh, where can people find them? Uh, Catherine Austin Fit, she uh, is on, it's called the solarireport.com. So S-O-L-A-R-I report.com. And I think John Titus has a YouTube channel called Best Evidence where he goes into this and breaks all this stuff down in a, in a brilliant way in kind of lay terms that we can kind of wrap our head around it. And um, he goes into the, into the weeds a little bit more with it. And go, he actually explains how money's created and commercial banks can basically print money out of thin air um, and, 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 and does a, a really good job of explaining it to somebody who may be not familiar with these types of terms. Cool. And uh, I'll shout out one other website that I think is uh, particularly good on these topics, and that's uh, Wall Street on Parade. I don't know if you've ever yeah. come across yeah. them, but they're cool. All right. So now let's get into, so um, you were writing about both the AI system that BlackRock is building and then also the Aladdin system. So I'll hand it back to you if you want to let people know what that is. So Aladdin is basically, um, it is basically an AI system that they implemented years ago. Larry Fink kind of financed it. And what they did is they they inputted all kinds of data within the market. So they took all the market data and they've just con continually grown that in different types of markets and inputs all this data. I think something like 70% of all transactions on Wall Street within the, within the um, like trades are done automatically without human intervention and aladdin has a big part in that because it basically you know it analyzes all this stuff in real time and it will make suggestions to you know different all these other banks take it on as well you have to kind of look into it it, it aladdin actually is an acronym for something and it's it's just like one of the craziest it, it's insane how this uh system has also helped to scoop up all the real estate that happened during the pandemic with, with BlackRock basically going in uh, and purchasing sight unseen all these uh, single family homes that otherwise would have bought by families. So they're buying all these, all basically all the moves that they are making is made through this Aladdin system, which is an AI system. And it just can continually gets more and more powerful. It just, and it's under right everybody's nose as well. Like I said, it's, 
it's automatically all these different investment houses and banks they also tapped into it to use it to help them decide you know how they're going to invest and and, and where they're going to put their money and, and it's it just it's crazy when you really look into it how large this is and if you're not in the financial industry at a high level you don't have any idea that anything anything's going on like this so the creepier part, I, that's the first I, I've heard. So it sounds like the Aladdin, it's just an AI system for investments, which uh, I, I, I mean, as a theoretical, I guess every investment firm, like people have had quants, like that, that kind of makes sense that you would, uh, your best players would invest in kind of the best technology to um, have foresight on investments. And also as a theoretical, capital flowing into industries, like if it's not a rigged market is not necessarily mm -hmm. nefarious. Um, but the other side of it, which ties in with the ESG scores did sound kind of more like uh, your bond super villain sitting in a lair coming up with the scheme, um, mm -hmm. which sounded like the, they were also building a rating system, I guess, which revolved around the ESG scores to kind of decide how to allocate capital. Um, mm -hmm. But I'll hand that back to you. Cause I'm not sure I had the specifics. Correct. No, that's pretty much it. So the, yeah, the ESG this basically amounts to a, um, a, a social, credit score for corporations, right? So they, they based upon how they're going to invest based upon how the corporations are falling in line with the environmental aspect, social uh, and governance as, as, aspect. Um, so in my mind, it's kind of like a, a way to extort businesses to uh, act in the ways that they want them to act. If they don't, then they're going to get a, they're not going to get a, an ESG score that is to, uh, you know, the, the liking to the, the major financial institutions like BlackRock, and they won't be able to receive funding for their projects. So basically, it's a way to strong arm big business into acting in ways they want to in order to invest in certain things the way they want to, like the net zero thing. You know, all, all this basically deindustrializing a lot of uh, parts of the, of the country. And uh, it's a way to, like I said, strong arm businesses to do things that they want them to do under the guise of ESG. They can purchase offsetting carbon credits, things like that, which is just um, it's just the next next Ponzi scheme uh, in, a, in a long list of Ponzi schemes that have been occurring for years. So uh, th that's interesting to me because um, with the ESG scores, I can't tell if um, it seems to me like they're trying to create basically government legislation that will make uh, investments that otherwise weren't profitable profitable and then also limit like competition towards you know, burning coal or just selling you a gas car so that all of a sudden your electric car is uh, is like the they want to limit competition by limiting investment in, you know, what would be good investments because they actually create value in the marketplace. And then they also want to create legislation that I'm not allowed to own a gas car. So then therefore, all of a sudden, the charging stations that they're investing in or the windmills that they're investing in mm -hmm. are actually profitable because otherwise they wouldn't be. Now, when you look at that, do you see it as like they're front running the market where they know that's not going to work? And so basically for the next couple of years, they're just trying to divert some investments into, uh, and I don't know if you ever read Dave, David Stockman's book, the great deformation, um, which is a great read if you've never read it, but he's got a chapter in where he just talks about Obama's green energy investments and basically mm -hmm. how all those firms went under and that it was just basically his friends, crony capitalism, giving them investment money, never had to have a return in, for investors and they never did. So there's a possibility that like BlackRock's kind of coming into the market and they're going to be diverting a lot of government money into, uh, projects that are never supposed to work 
essentially it's like a mob thing. It's like a fake company. You pump in things under some sort of a green energy thing. You pocket it. You sell investors on the idea of, hey, government's coming in and these with their laws, this windmill thing, it's going to be profitable because it's going to be the only game in town. They know it's going to fail, but my God, they're going to make some money in the meantime. That's option one. Option mm -hmm. two is they actually see uh, systems completely collapsing and they're going to get like a one world digital currency where they're going to limit consumption and they really want to basically lock down and own all the means of like production. We're going fully socialist and like they don't care that there might be less food supply. Like they're literally looking for less humans on the population and for them to be in control over us. I don't know. What are the two do you think like they're they're more gunning for? I mean, the second one is what I really am drawn to. The, the end game being the digital currency, the CBDCs, because they're already talking about that. The Bank of International Settlements is talking about that, which is like the, the top of the heap as far as the financial world is concerned. Um, there's a video that you can find if you just search BIS CBDC and there's a guy, his first name is, it just searched that in Augustine. It'll bring up a, a talk he did. He's a big BIS banker where he basically says, hey, the reason we want these CBDCs is because they're programmable so we can do behavior modification. So if somebody doesn't you know, do something that we want them to do, we can cut off the money. And he basically says that in, in, in no uncertain terms, like that's really what the goal is. So in, in, in my mind, that's where they want to take this. The ESG is a way to consolidate power uh, and buy up basically everything and, and impose this um, ideology of ESG under the guise of, you know, um, environmentalism, basically. The planet's going to die. We have to do all this because of global warming and all that. It all ties into it. The end goal being CBDC when, with uh, uh, universal basic income, basically, where they're going to be able to take going direct from the fed into individuals uh by giving them programmable money that they can spend basically you know they can only spend it in the ways that it's programmed to spend that's basically the end of freedom human freedom if we, if we allow a cbdc to come to fruition and try to eliminate cash because they hate cash because i can pay you cash and they don't know anything about their transaction it's a way to track and trace every single transaction on the planet and then socially engineer you know society that they want the way they want to through behavior modification based upon how the cbds are programmed cbdc's are programmed so that's i i fall in line with the second option for sure that i think <laughs> it's part of a larger plan that is actually in in action right now and, and they tell you you can read through it even the fed is looking to do uh, a cbdc they're doing um trial runs right now all these major central banks are talking about it it don't really get much play in the media but, you know, they're going to obviously uh, try to entice people into it by being able to introduce the idea of you know, universal basic income, uh, which is basically just like welfare for the state where they're able to just put money right into your account and, 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 then, and then phase out cash transactions. That way, they, like I said, they, it's, it'll be all on a blockchain, which is completely traceable it, it, there forever. They'll be able to see what you've did with your money. And if they don't like it, then they can impose different sanctions on you. 
All right, and then one last uh, ESG question, and then we'll uh, turn to another topic. But it's uh, something a friend mentioned to me recently, and I've been giving some thought to because uh, I agree with everything you said, and I kind of look at what's going on. BlackRock's the biggest player, and I, I see – I don't know that they'll be successful in this, but it, this does look to me like it is their plan. Why is the oil industry seemingly silent? Now, I, I even know the story BlackRock flipped the X on board a couple years ago. But to me, like, if you were just looking at, like, the different mob bosses sitting down in a meeting, let's just say that these are the three most powerful. You got your army boss, and let's just imagine it's one person. You got one person runs all the military in the world. You got one person who's running the banks, got all the money in the world. And then you got one guy who's got all the oil. They all It's almost like a game of rocks, paper, scissors, shoot. Like, you kind of need the money guy to f- finance, like, the transactions, but then the military guy could kind of step up and, you know, wipe all them out because he's got the military, but then he can't really do that if he doesn't have access to oil. You know what I mean? But, like, if there's a good that everybody needs, it's definitely energy, and energy is unbelievably profitable. So, like, why are the energy bosses seemingly just taking this sitting down? And maybe they're not. Maybe that's why Saudi Arabia is now kind of aligning with China and, you know, uh, it, it could be that that's kind of the divergent path of a bipolar world is like, you know, these other guys just being like, now nah, we're going to sell oil and that gas. Um, but I don't know. I hand it back to you to just be like, at least in the U.S., why do you think we haven't seen more of a fight from like Exxon, Shell, just, you know, people who are making extreme amounts of money and have shareholders and a lucrative mm-hmm. product? That's a good question. I mean. Uh, this, this, my gut tells me that it's that it's because it's bullshit, because you know it's just it's another pretext or a smokescreen. And these oil companies, they know that we can't just operate on uh, windmills and solar. That's impossible. Everything we I- interact with on a daily basis is dependent upon oil. So you know this ESG and this this, this climate change environmentalist like uh, ideology, I think, is just being used as a way to usher in, like I said, that type of CBDC, complete control of society, they're always going to need to use use oil. I, I, I mean, I think that's why we're not really seeing much pushback from, you know, the Exxons of the world or the BPs of the world, because they know, bottom line is, no matter what they do, they're never going to be able to produce enough energy when it comes to just everyday use throughout the United, the United States and the world, just based upon uh you know, putting windmills in Texas, you know what I mean? Which is just absurd. We, we, we have to have oil. It's just, it's just the bottom line. And there, if you look at their, their profits really haven't been cut into or anything right now. I don't know what they're going to do long-term. They're probably just adopting these policies, uh, paying for carbon offsets, you know what I mean? In order to, 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 uh, get the governments off their back, basically just saying, hey, we'll, we'll pay X amount based upon what we are emitting in the air, CO2, the carbon credit comes into it as well. So I, I don't really <clears throat> think that they're, they're they're necessarily like just laying down on this. I just think that it's it's more of, um, simply put, just it's, it's more uh, of a pretext or, or a scam in order to usher in a larger agenda, which of course these, these big oil companies will, will be a part of in some part. But you know, it's, it's hard to really say, you know, it, that everything it seems that happened over the last, since say 9-11, it's always been pretextual. There's got to be something that happens that allows them to do something they wouldn't otherwise do. And I just think that's just the continuation of what we're seeing, you know, in recent years. 
All right. So uh, before we transition to the next topic, let's take a second, pay the bills. I'll let you plug first. Let people know the uh, Substack you got and the uh, new website you're running, uh, writing for and whatever other projects you got going on. Sure. You can find me at, at Josh Walkos um, on Twitter. That's J-O-S-H-W-A-L-K-O-S. I do a Substack called We The Free. So we the free .substack.com. And then you can go to the, the publica.com. Um, to check out my long form articles that I'll be writing. Um, and I just released one on the, kind of the history of transgenderism and uh, kind of where that's leading as far as how it's being uh, pushed on children these days. And it's a great read that actually has um, the the various uh, kind of specifics that are usually uh, missing from the conversation. All right, before I transition to the next uh, topic, shout out to my sponsor, sheathunderwear.com. Uh, greatest underwear to ever grace the balls of man. Use promo code RYM. You get yourself 20% off. I'll have to hook you up with Josh. It is a game changer. Quality materials. You can separate your dick from your balls. All right. Um, CIA involvement in 9-11. You tweeted that one out, that uh, new evidence has come out, that uh, at least uh, they had an interaction with a couple of the individuals of the day. Not necessarily mm -hmm. that they actually uh, orchestrated the entire affair. Uh, right. But, you know, obviously any, <laughs> anything with... <clears throat> Government actually behind being behind 9 11 is going to be an interesting topic, so uh, I'll hand it back to you if you want to let us know the new story that just <clears throat> yeah, came so out. <clears throat> basically, uh, there's uh, the Guant there's a Guantanamo military commission, uh, where there was a recent court filing that was released that had a report by, by this guy named Don Costa. Let's see if I can find his name, uh, Don Conestrara, who's a DA uh, investigator. <clears throat> excuse me. And he basically posits that the CIA was working with two of the hijackers on 9-11 and they allowed them to come into the country and they were trying to recruit them for whatever purpose. And the CIA hid the fact that they were in contact with these two hijackers from the FBI, which then basically allowed uh, them to go free. And they, they assisted in them getting into America and working with Saudi intelligence within America to kind of you know, I, I don't want to say that they plan, you know, help plan 9-11, but there's a lot of shady shit that's happening as far as what the CIA and FBI were not communicating with and why the CIA is hiding, you know, the fact that they're working with two of the people who ended up being considered terrorists on that day and not allowing the FBI to know about that. Well, it just it's kind of a crazy revelation that just came out. Um, I think everybody who are in like the libertarian movement or like kind of the, the, the truth movement have their suspicions about 9-11 and kind of how that all played out once you kind of look at it objectively and everything that happened on that day and everything leading up to it. There's multiple intelligence failures that happened. Um, and this just kind of gives gives a, an insight that we haven't had before that, that kind of confirms, hey, they were actually in contact with these guys who actually pulled off 9-11 why is that? There's not a whole lot of questions answered on it, but it's fascinating to, to actually learn that this investigator, he did uncover the fact that they were working with these two guys, helped them get to San Diego. They were working with this guy, um, uh, his name's Omar, uh, I can't remember his last name, but he, he is, he's essentially a Saudi intelligence agent who paid for their uh, apartments in San Diego and put them up and kind of introduced them to the Muslim community there. And all this all along, the CIA had their tentacles talking to these guys, trying to recruit them for some reason, which we don't know. It's um, it, it's sad how long it takes for these stories to kind of get out. 
because uh, it just it you end up so far removed emotionally from what happened for people to get like even annoyed about it. And so like best case scenario, I guess the CIA and maybe even a low, low level CIA person fucked up where all mm-hmm. of a sudden they met these guys and they realized, oh, they're tied in with Saudi. They're tied in with these. These guys would make great assets. They're trying to convert them and they literally just fucked up. They all of a sudden they're watching the news one day they're like, ah, shit, that was that guy we were trying to work with. And then they got to try and delete files because they're like, this doesn't make me look good, right? That's best case scenario. Worst case scenario is they might have been a little bit more involved. It's a similar thing with uh, Fauci that, uh, to me, the idea that we were co-collaborating with the uh, Chinese Communist Party on what doubles as bioweapons research makes no sense to me. But, like, best case scenario, Fauci... uh, actually is an enthusiast for um, gain-of-function research. He actually thinks that gain-of-function research is something that the human race needs to be doing in order to stay ahead of viruses. Mm -hmm. That's what he believes for some reason. That doesn't make any sense to me. And for another thing that makes no sense to me, not only is he an enthusiast for gain-of-function research, he doesn't do it out on some base in Alaska where it couldn't possibly leak out onto other people. He does it in a uh, densely populated area along with scientists that probably don't follow the safest. I mean, proof is that fucked up on this one, but I'm just saying it's out in China. Like we all know China doesn't necessarily always have the safest building practices and whatnot. So best case scenario is Fauci is a gain of function enthusiast who realized the only people I can partner with on this research is China and thought that it was so important that he went, he went against like his own protocols and laws in order to fund it. And then he just fucked up that a lab, that the exact lab that he was sponsoring caused what he then declared to be a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. That's best case scenario. It's like, obviously, you're going to cover your tracks. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, like, if you're that guy, you're going to try and delete all records, like, even in the best case scenario. The point I'm getting at is, like, that's just kind of the way these things work is that, like, of that's course, like, they're gonna... that's how they would like you to think. You know, that, yeah. that scenario is kind of what they're trying to push out as the right. as the narrative. We need to get a T-shirt that says gain of function enthusiast. That'd be kind of cool. <laughs> uh, but uh, but Fauci actually, interestingly, you know, Obama put a moratorium on gain of function research. That's one of the few good things he did do where he said all these scientists wrote to him and said, hey, we got to stop doing this shit. We're going to cause a pandemic. He said, all right, we're going to put a moratorium on it. Fauci actually went around him, hired EcoHealth Alliance, and they can help to conduct the gain of function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, and they basically just undermine the moratorium that way. And and that that Wuhan Institute of Virology had already had problems with leaking SARS-1 before. Uh, you know, the fact that people even still consider the wet market as the culprit for this is just insane to me. Whenever you have this fucking Wuhan Institute of Virology, you know, a few miles away from the wet market studying uh, SARS-CoV-2, trying to do gain-of-function research on it. It's just absurd that we're even talking about or entertaining the idea that it was uh, somehow naturally made. Um, but Fauci took over early, like about mid-career. He was re- really prominent in the, in the 80s during the AIDS pandemic. And then the military-industrial complex came into him, and he, he took over like their bioweapons program, basically, and, and started uh, operating as dual use basically with the different research that he was doing. 
that's why he was paid the the highest paid government official in the whole entire government. He was making more than the president because over the years he he would get half of his budget was coming from the, from the uh, DOD and then also with you know the uh, HHS as well. So that was a, a dual thing that he was doing, and that's what kind of bolstered him to this uh, position of power and gave him the power to determine the research that was going to be conducted throughout uh, you know several different uh, fields. He had the purse strings, so if you didn't fall in line with the way his ideology or what he thought, and you applied for a grant, you wasn't going to get it. So that would explain a lot as to why all these people fall in line so much, because they knew that any potential grant funding that they were going to uh, be able to get depended upon them staying on, falling in line with with whatever policies the Fauci and HHS have. So basically, the uh, military-industrial complex looked at the NZT thing and went, "Wow, this is a really evil scientist. We got to work with this guy." And then yeah. they started working with him to fund bioweapons research. Basically, yeah, yeah. They do, it's called dual use. Basically, they'll they'll say that they're working on a virus for a particular reason, but there's usually another uh, uh, black budget, so to speak, that is is also using it for military purposes in, in bioweapons research. They, they got around, bioweapons research is illegal, but they got around it by saying it was supposed to be defensive. So they were trying to figure out how this virus is going to evolve a certain way, in a, in a way they can get ahead of it in the event that it does, which really, that's just a, a bullshit excuse in my mind. Uh, you know, the United States government has a history of bioweapons that they've uh, used and chemical weapons they've used. It hasn't something that something's been stopped. It's just been a way that they have been able to get around it through different uh, semantic tricks and, and, and policy tricks. Do you think we'll end up uh, seeing some like fantastic Ukraine bioweapon story? I think clandestine on Twitter is the guy who keeps uh, reporting on that one. Do you think that will ever, uh, I don't know, see the light of day? I mean, they there there was it's a fact that they were doing bioweapons research in Ukraine. Um, I don't really know a whole lot about this particular labs that they were doing, but as far as the mainstream media covering it or anything, the only, right. way, the only way they're ever going to cover it is if it serves some type of larger purpose that the government wants to 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 leak this for some reason. You know, just similar to the the leaks that just happened with that that kid who looks like he's twelve years old. Uh, you know, with the uh, the Discord yeah, yeah, leak. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what you think about that, but to me, it stinks to high hell. It's like right. it seems like they're trying to get this deliberately released in order to cover their ass in some way, just to get that information out that wouldn't otherwise be able to get to the public's ears and like lessen getting information in, into like kind of like the zeitgeist that they wouldn't otherwise be able to in order to cover their ass. That's that's just that's, my that's, going that's what it appeared to me. Also, um, all right, let's shift topics here. I want to talk about fluoride for a second. Uh, I stopped drinking my tap water because it was making me lethargic and gay. I couldn't tolerate, you know, walking around <clears> finding men. Frogs are gay. Exactly. So I had to stop drinking it. No, in all truth, my my tap. I live in an old building, and like mm -hmm. one day, like I was ignoring that my water tasted off, and then it got flagrant enough where I was like, I can't drink this anymore. And then I just started buying like bottles of water and saying I was going to buy a filter, which I never have. And uh -huh. then I like within a week, I actually noticed like. Oh, I'm way more energetic since I've stopped drinking. Really? Tap. Like, I literally, within a week, I was like, oh, that made a difference. Now, maybe there were other things going on in my life. Like, that's anecdotal. Like, I can't prove to you. I mean, I guess I could start drinking the tap water again and seeing if I take naps in the afternoon. But I, for myself, noticed a tangible difference in energy levels when I stopped drinking my tap water. And I drink a fair amount of water. I, mm -hmm. I never believe the fluoride thing in any i never researched it i never cared about it it just seemed like fucking nonsense to me 
But I guess with my limited experience with uh, not drinking my tap water and then also knowing the fact that government clearly doesn't have our best interest and the idea that a product that they have no use for, they might just shove into water, uh, doesn't, I, I guess it doesn't strike me like something uh, beyond or outside the realm of uh, government and the way that they would operate. But I still, to this day, that's one of those, like, I, how do you research water? Like, what am I, like, what, what am I going to go? What am I going to do? Who am I going to talk to? It just seems like such a nonsense topic to, like, how crazy do you really want to be that you're like, don't drink the tap water. So mm-hmm. I hand it back to you because you did tweet out some crazy research thing that just came out that seemed to have some bombshells about the uh, dangers yeah. of fluoride. So there's this uh, organization called the Fluoride Action Network. They've been litigating and suing uh, the government about uh, releasing a report that basically was a review by the Na- the National Toxicology Program, um, which basically <clears throat> they did a, a retroactive review of all the evidence of the effects of fluoride on the human organism, um, and they was blocking this report from coming out through this lawsuit. The government did not want it to be released, and they kept on, uh, you know, uh, going to the judge and saying, given evidence that hey, we need this. This is part of a larger lawsuit, basically to get fluoride removed from uh, from the water. And fluoride is basically the fluoride that is used in the water is a chemical byproduct from the from its industrial waste. Basically, is basically a way for the chemical industry to monetize the waste that they couldn't otherwise get rid of. And they used it basically to say that it's you know it, it strengthens your bones. It's supposed to be good for your teeth. Like they just use all kinds of excuses to be able to put this in the water, and it's it's still used all over the country as well. But this report finally was released, and within the report, this this national toxicology program came to clear cut conclusions that fluoride is not safe at any levels within drinking water it has problems on pregnant women with fetuses it, it's supposed to it lowers the iq uh cumulatively of, of the more and more you drink it uh there's a lot of research out there uh it does sound like a crazy ass conspiracy theory you know what i mean like they're trying to put it in there to make us dumber you know did, the nazis did this that kind of thing i think it more boils down to just uh straight up greed and, and collusion between the government and the chemical industry i don't know that they were intentionally trying to hurt people but there is evidence that they've known throughout the years based on different research that's been buried that it does have neurological impacts all kinds of physical impacts on humans um but you you can't really trace it back to that if you're not if you're not looking for it so they just kind of let it go on and on over these you know decades and decades it's such a funny concept that you're like an evil executive and you end up with a waste product that there's nothing you can do with it and it's like, well, we'll put it in the water. <laughs> and then they're like, well, how are you going to do that? And they're like, no, I'll just talk to the government. Like, I can fi- I can, I can, spin this. I'll tell them it's good for your teeth. I'm trying yeah. to work on a, on a joke. Uh, I have like a whole bit about my grandfather being at the hospital. And I got a piece of it that's working in regards to that. I just, the food that they feed you at the hospital when they're telling, like the disparity between what they tell us is nutritious and what oh, they yeah. feed you at a hospital is garbage. It, yeah. It's pretty remarkable. Um, and I, I like, I, I just don't have the joke yet, but th- like, I've been just playing around with the idea that like someone invented jello and no one would eat it. And then some guys like the, the guy who got bissed off cookies onto every airplane was like, don't worry, I'll just buy, I'll get, I'll sell this to every hospital. Oh but, like, yeah. It, there is something too. It's like the worst products in the world then just gets sold to like the government for mass consumption because no one in the actual market would purchase it. 
I mean, you look at it, it basically we're being poisoned, you know, throughout right. through all, all the products that we use on a daily basis. Like uh, the, the epidemic of like just chronic disease that's occurred just in the last 20, 30 years. I mean, there's, it's clear as day that something's going on, you know, and it has to be environmental and what we're putting in our bodies. Um, it, 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 the more and more you kind of look at it from different angles, it does, it, it seems like they're trying to poison us. They're trying to get us dependent upon a healthcare system that we, you know, with the pharmaceutical industry involved, all these major industries are colluding with the government basically to create uh, customers for life, you know, based upon what we're putting in our bodies. During the pandemic, all they had to do is say, hey, take vitamin D3 with some K2, and that'll <laughs> drastically decrease your chances of dying from COVID. But they didn't come out with that. It was always a vaccine always got to be a vaccine. There was never talk about, hey, getting some sunshine, drink lots of water, just normal things that get, keep you healthy. It was always going back to the vaccine. That's how, that's why I think it was, it was nefarious the way, the way that it was treated through the whole thing. All right, let's cover uh, two more topics quickly. <clears throat> uh, one is I keep seeing big, bold headlines about Biden family corruption. And I'm not here to say that the Biden family is not corrupt. I would venture to guess that they got tie-ins with China and the whole Ukraine thing in some ways is uh, trying to make sure some of that money's flowing to the family. Uh, with all that being said, the only thing I've seen thus far on Hunter Biden's laptop are pictures of him with the giant hog having fun with hookers. Do you have any like scoop of, and, and like I keep seeing really bold headlines, Fox, New York Post, oh, we got an IRS agent that just flipped, we've got this guy that just flipped, and then every time I actually read any of the articles, they're just empty, nothing in them, no actual proof. Um, you think we're going to actually walk away with any like information of the Hunter Biden family corruption? You think there's anything there? They're going to ever get anything? I, I think there is a lot of evidence. There's a report called, uh, by an organization called Marco Polo. If you look that up, it's a gigantic report. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they, they really break it down. If you look at this report, it's a PDF you right. for free right online. And it goes through the whole laptop of all the evidence that was going on there. And there's plenty of evidence that uh, the Bidens have criminal activity. But is, is to answer your question, I think that is being held in case they want Biden out of office because the guy can barely talk or walk. So they could use that. The establishment can say at any time, pull this out. Hey, look at this evidence of corruption. We can't have him rerun for office. That's the only way I can see it coming out for like a political purpose, not to actually, you know, uh, have justice in the world. It's basically it can be hung over his head and said, hey, if you don't act the way we want to, he's clearly not cognitively ca capable and he's being led by the nose through all the policies he's created. You know, the guy can't walk up Air Force One without falling down. He can't talk. He can't string a sentence together. So <clears throat> I kind of see that more as just a, um, a way to get what, get what the establishment wants. And if he doesn't do what they want or if they just don't want him in office anymore, they can pull this out at any time and say, you know, he actually did commit these crimes and then he'll have to resign and not, not, not run for office. And we get Hillary Clinton coming back in to, to run. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be a hoot? All right, let's close it out with, uh, you just wrote a detailed article about, uh, the history of, uh, transgenderism, actually Jewish scientists out in Germany. <clears throat> So, you know, Hitler was onto something, getting rid of some of those people. But anyways, no, I'm kidding. I'm Jewish. I can say those things. Don't comment. Uh, <laughs> so you got, you went in deep, you delved in, and then uh, you kind of closed it out with uh, what they're trying to do now and why it's so demonic. So I guess if you want to plug the piece and where people can find it. Yeah, you can uh, find it at thepublica.com. Um, 
publica, P-U-B-L-I-C-A.com. Um, and basically it, it goes into the history of kind of where the concept of transgenderism came from, which, you know, as far as trans transgenderism is concerned, if you're an adult and you want to say that you're the opposite sex and go about your life that way, more power to you, do whatever you want. Like, I don't really care. That's the libertarian kind of view with it. The thing that caught my attention about it is the way that it's being so pervasively pushed. It seems like there's some type of agenda going on, especially when it comes to children. And then I learned that, you know, you can walk into a Planned Parenthood as like a 15 year old in some states and say that you are, if say you're a girl and you feel like you're a boy, you can walk out there with testosterone like in the same day. So I was like, this just doesn't seem right that they're allowing dude, I children try that to make shit and get jacked. That's what I should yeah. do. Just go in there. I guess, no, they give me estrogen. Well, the problem that would be help. me and you would have more problem these days of, of obtaining TRT than right. a kid. And I was just like, this is, this is <laughs> fucking crazy. Like these are, these are hormones that they're trying to, first of all, they're trying to block puberty in a lot of them. Um, and that has so many downstream effects on their body and their ability to have sexual function in the future. They're, uh, it depletes their, their calcium levels. So their bones become brittle. It's, it's a, it's a, um, a medication called Lupron that they're, they're giving to children. And then I learned that Lupron, uh, uh, that they give the kids and Lupron that they give say to a cancer patient who has prostate cancer, they charge way more for the kids Lupron. It's the same exact thing. So there's a clear agenda, uh, you know, by the pharmaceutical companies, uh, that, industrial complex that is very profitable with these surgeries that they're doing as well. You know, they call it top surgery, 16 year old wants to cut off her breast. They call it top surgery, like euphemistically, which like all this, when it comes to the children part, that's what got me kind of just like, you know, this is just too much. Like you can't, you can't, children can't think that long term because their brains aren't developed to, to make these life, this, like, you know, life changing decisions. And we are seeing a lot of detransitioners come out now and say, look, I was a kid at the time. I didn't know what was going on. And I feel like I was taken advantage of and for ideological purposes, it seems. So, you know, the history goes back to Germany, like you said, a guy named Hirschfeld who kind of introduced the idea of sex reassignment and, and transgenderism. And, uh, and then it goes to <clears throat> fast forward to the seventies in the United States, a guy named John Money. He was a researcher, a, a sexologist uh, at John Hopkins university. And he conducted, uh, along with one, a surgeon of his, the first sex reassignment surgery at John Hopkins University. Uh, there's a story in the article, I don't know if you remember, about David Raymer, the, the, the kid who had a like, catastrophic circumcision that happened to him as a, as a baby. And the parents took him to John Raymer. And he's the guy who basically thought that he introduced the idea as gender as a social construct. So it's, it's not something that's fixed. And he used this boy who had his, basically his penis cut off completely during a circumcision, uh, told the parents, hey, what we're going to do is we're going to raise him as a, a, a girl, and we're going to study this. And, and, and he was basically trying to push this idea that he could become a girl and live as a girl, and, and no one would know none the wiser. <clears throat> the interesting part about that is he actually had a twin brother, too. Uh, so the, the brother was, you know, physiologically fine. So they had a control group. So this this came like a big deal in the 70s within the academic community because of just the way that it, it worked out. But, you know, he got a lot of positive press. They said that this was working. And then fast forward to the 90s, uh, a couple of researchers looked back retroactively on it and then started interviewing David Raymer about this and found out that 
No, he, he was always treated as he was made fun of his whole life. He always had feelings that he was a boy. He knew he was a boy. He even, he even peed standing up, if you can believe that, uh, throughout his whole life. He rejected the idea, converted back to being uh, living as a male. But the sad part is, you know, both him and his brother ended up committing suicide because of the, the kind of trauma and, and the attention that was given to them throughout this whole ordeal. But they But the transgender movement looks back on that and they kind of talk about it in a positive way as proof, but they don't ever mention that, hey, in the 90s, we learned that this was complete bullshit. You know, this this caused a lot of problems, but they kind of point to that as like the the, 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 the starting point of gender as a construct and it being a success, but they never tell you the follow-up story to it. Um, it's so wild that I, I guess their approach here uh, is, hey, listen, we're... We live in a world of man and scientists are kind of the gods. And look, we can we can dictate the rules of this game beyond the perceived reality or the the, the thus far established reality. Mm-hmm. But then when the scientists don't when the science doesn't support the claim, they still stick to it. You know what I mean? It's like it would be one thing if you actually had like a scientist who could go, hey, look, I can defeat death or hey, look, I can defeat the laws of gender. Like some of the things that were somewhat established by religion it would be interesting if a scientist actually stepped in and went, look, I can actually bring back your loved one from another realm or something. I don't know. Whatever's been established in our reality, if science, like, you know, the same as time travel doesn't exist, but you're watching a movie, Tony Stark figures out time travel. Like, it would be interesting if a scientist actually sat down and figured out how to, call, like, solve something that was previously a part of our perceived reality. But they mm-hmm. haven't done that. Right. And then they continue to pretend like they have, which uh, and then in this case where it just becomes so dangerous is one, I guess they want to claim that uh, like, I guess their exact case study is a guy who died. Right. It was a guy that they, the guy wanted to run the experiment to go, look, if someone told you that if you were born a male, but someone told you were a girl and you were raised as a girl, you would just be a girl. And then that turned out not to be true. And so they just mm-hmm. don't talk about it. Or in this case, I just think like you would think that if you encourage children uh, that they can make their own decisions about their gender, you would have good evidence for the fact that that was a good idea. Mm-hmm. Not only do they not have good evidence, all the research at the moment suggests like 80 to 90% revert back after puberty. But like, even if we didn't have that number, you would think that they would have very good evidence to make the claim that a child could make that transition. But they don't have it. And they claim to be the scientists at the same time. It's like COVID all over. It, it's, it is. And it's it's a denial of reality, but... The, the thing that I'm really interested in is the is the kind of the, the agenda, it seems like, that's behind it. Right. Because when you're talking about transgenderism, it's only like 1% of the population historically. You know what I mean? So the the way that it's pushed in the media, the dissolving of norms, uh, it seems like there's an intentional agenda to create a whole other class of victims, you know, because... Uh, you know, the whole <clears throat> equality thing, we kind of reached that, you know, uh, up until a few years ago, there was actually equality in society. The, you know, the people who do the critical race theory will say otherwise, but <clears throat> there's no laws out there that are saying that women can't vote or <clears throat> blacks can't go to school with whites and things like that anymore. We kind of took care of all that. So it seems to me that they're creating like out of whole cloth, all new victim classes that they can then use to push this agenda of equity and uh, you know uh, critical race theory, all this kind of ties together. And the underlying uh, ideology is kind of like a Marxist ideology too. And it's being it's taken over 
all kinds of institutions now. It started off in academia. Now it's went into even the medical field. It's going into science. You know, math is racist, I guess, these days. You know, it's, 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 it's crazy the, the short period of time how it's kind of just taken over institutions and become normalized in a way that like is undermining the very foundations of Western society. And that makes me think that it's an actual uh, plan or an agenda that they're deliberately trying to do this for some reason. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate all the research that you do. What, uh, what's the next topic you're going to try and delve into or write an article on? I actually uh, <clears throat> have one that's getting edited now. It's about fifth generational warfare, basically the way that the military views war these days. And it's a silent war um, and the way AI is tying into that within the online world. And um, basically just delving into the, the history of different types of warfare and what, how fifth generation warfare needs to be more known by the public because it's a war that basically is designed that no one knows is actually going on, which kind of ties in to what I was just saying about that agenda and things like like the different things that are just bewilderingly bewildering to people these days. Like what the hell is going on? I have a, you know an idea that you know, that is actually a, a plan and there's an actual war going on underneath the surface that people just aren't aware of. And is that going to be up at the uh, the publica? Yeah, that'll be on the the publica. Um, if you want to follow me at Josh Walkos, you know, I'll of course post that out and do some other threads as well. Uh, tonight I'm going to be on. Uh, one of the Twitter spaces talking about the 9-11 thing that we were talking about as well. Um, so if you want to check that out, just follow me at, uh, at Josh Walkus. And thanks for having Excellent. me, Robin. Yep, thanks for coming on, and I uh, appreciate the work you're doing. Looking forward to more threads. All right, man. Take care. All right. Have a good one. You too.